Straits brings legal and business insights at the intersection of the shipping and energy sectors. This podcast series offers trends, developments, challenges and topics of interest from Reed Smith litigation, regulatory and finance lawyers across our network of global offices. If you have any questions about the topics discussed on this podcast, please do contact our speakers. Hi, everyone. Thank you very much for tuning in to the latest edition of Trading Straits. My name's Alexander Sandyforth. Uh, I'm here with Elizabeth Farrell. We're both partners in the London office of Reed Smith, LLP. I sit in our transportation industry group and, and Elizabeth sits in our energy and natural resources group. What we've decided to spend some time talking about uh, today is something that covers sort of what we both do and also isn't sector specific. So so everything that we're going to talk about applies across commercial law. It's not shipping specific. It's not commodities specific. And we're going to talk about sort of recent developments and, and a general overview of uh, court procedure, as both of us have, have been involved in a number of court disputes uh, over the, the past 12 months. We're going to start with alternative dispute resolution and particularly the, the consequences of failure to engage. And, and we thought it would be good to start with this because there's been a very recent uh, reported case in the commercial court as a dispute about an aviation lease but the sort of the, the facts don't necessarily matter where it's it's a timely reminder that uh, the English courts are very keen on alternative disputes resolution and, and by that we're, we're talking principally about mediation where particularly given the, the turmoil uh, around the world over the past year because of all things COVID-19 related. I would say that I think the courts are very keen on people taking a sensible approach to things and, and the way that the courts uh, can, can effectively enforce that and, and indeed it did in, in this recent case was that although one party had and, and the court found good and, and substantial claims uh, against the other party, that that party's failure to even considering engaging in some form of ADR didn't impress the, the court very much. And so what you ended up with was the court saying, yes, I award a particular sum of money. However, the execution of this judgment is stayed for the parties to attempt alternative dispute resolution. And, and that all drives back to the so-called overriding objective under the civil procedure rules, which is essentially that cases are meant to be dealt with justly. So really, it's just a reminder that, that because everything has been um, so unusual over the past year, even if you have potentially clearly very good claims, you still can't ignore ADR on uh, that basis. Really interesting, Alexander. And I should say, delighted to be doing this podcast with you. I think that alternative dispute resolution more than ever over the past year has been a real hot topic. I've had a lot of questions by clients, both bringing and defending claims, wondering to what extent the court is going to encourage them into settlement and where in the court process once proceedings have begun, settlement uh, might be or settlement attempts might be sort of appropriately attempted. 
And what I've seen from the commercial court is a real drive to encourage parties at least to talk about the possibility of alternative dispute resolution in the sense of potential mediation and also making commercial court judges available, although I don't think this is very often taken up by parties, but making commercial court judges available for early neutral evaluation, um, which is similar to a mediation in that it's a, a non a process that's not won't result in a binding judgment, but it means a commercial court judge, not the one dealing with any aspect of the case for the commercial court, will look at parties' submissions and give the parties a view as to how they would decide the case or a particular aspect of the case if the case were to be heard before them. I'm not aware of anybody, say, maybe once, several years ago, having taken up that possibility, but it, but it exists. And it's something that has been mentioned at case management conferences in a couple of cases that I've been involved with in the last 12 months. I'm also conscious that the standard form of directions order, um, certainly in the commercial court now, requires or suggests that the parties might want the court to order that the parties report to them at a particular stage in the case, and it usually after witness statements have been exchanged, as to whether the parties have engaged in alternative dispute resolution, and if not, then without prejudice to privilege that might have attached to those discussions, why it's not been possible um, to engage in alternative dispute resolution. So it at least is a way of forcing parties to consider the possibility of settlement um, you know, partway through the case. Another really hot topic in the world of commercial dispute resolution, both arbitration and court, is witness statements, the taking of witness evidence. It's something that all in-house lawyers should be really conscious of because it requires a change to the way in which witnesses are handled from the earliest point in a dispute arising. The change in the courts, in the business and property courts, has come through the introduction of Practice Direction 57AC, snappily titled, um, which came into effect on the 6th of April this year, 2021. That Practice direction has been brewing for quite some time. I think it was first an initiative um, amongst commercial court judges and then expanded to become a, a broader business and property court initiative, introduced by judges who had been on circuit in the Crown Court and so have experience of witnesses giving evidence in chief, giving oral evidence at trial, rather than having all their evidence in chief written down in a witness statement. And there's a real, completely justified, concern by judges in civil cases and by arbitration tribunals that they have for years now been presented with evidence in chief in the form of written witness statements, which can often be very, very lengthy and have had probably too much involvement by lawyers, by which I mean that they have been drafted by lawyers having reviewed the documents in the case and then discussed with 
the witness, sort of going through the documents with the witness, and, and that can damage an honest witness's true recollection of events. There's a very similar drive in arbitration to try to encourage people to take witness evidence in a way which is aligned with the new practice direction, um, or happens to be aligned with the new practice direction from the courts, uh, the English court. And that's reflected and driven by the same concerns about the um, evidence of witnesses being corrupted or overly influenced by their knowledge of documents in the case, of perhaps the client's, the client company's party line on the case. So the ICC has produced a report on the accuracy of fact witness evidence in international arbitration, which deals with how to prepare witness evidence without altering witnesses' memories. Um, That is a really useful document that I would encourage anybody involved with taking witness evidence to read. It's really all about how, in any case, the way that witness evidence is prepared can enhance the reliability of the evidence in the eyes of an arbitration tribunal or in the eyes of the, the court. And I think, Alexander, you, you may be more familiar with dealing with LMAA cases than I am, but I know that the LMAA's latest edition of the rules have taken some inspiration from the court's new practice direction. That's absolutely correct, Elizabeth. What what all these things are designed at, as as you have said, is is ultimately what I would call over lawyering. And I, I think that the, what has happened, and and I've seen it myself on cases, is is that you, you've got the old cliche, but it is true that commercial cases are won on documents. And obviously now, sort of given the way that, that people do business, you have many, many documents that even 10 years ago, perhaps you you wouldn't. And, and of course, I'm, I'm talking about things like email, instant communications and the like, where, I don't know, you send one email, you copy in five people, and, and then that goes on and on. You, you have an almost exponential amount uh, of, of data. And I think what lawyers have been guilty of is is effectively when it comes to statements. It's, it's sort of almost become, in my experience, another way to sort of almost get another dig in about how good your case is or how bad the other side's case is. And so it's almost becoming a, a sort of set of submissions. And, and so, for example, I've, I've been involved in cases where people have uh, a fairly rudimentary or, or basic understanding of the English language, and, and all of a sudden you're being served with a statement that looks like it's been written by an English scholar, and, and, and the two just don't add up. Uh, and so I think what remains to be seen is how strictly... Uh, the courts will will enforce this and and indeed tribunals and, and effectively say this is not on this statement is too long or this statement is over lawyered or this statement is effectively a running commentary on the documents and, and actually say you can't do this and and I think what in, in court that is quite useful now having had to put my name to 
sort of a statement um, from from one of my clients a few weeks ago is effectively you are make, asked now to make declarations. Nothing that, that that I think is new, but when you actually see it written down, it it sort of does cause you to stop and think and go, "Hang on a minute." And and so I, I think it could only be be a good thing because the other important point with all this that that obviously we're not really talking about today is sort of the the longer these things get, the bigger they get, the more time you spend on them, the more it costs. And sort of the the other sort of big concern with sort of this runaway with with witness evidence and documents is that that you have not necessarily simple cases you still have difficult cases but you 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 then have things where sort of your costs are going up and up and up and the sum of money in in, in dispute starts to look smaller and smaller and smaller and so I'm hoping that sort of an indirect benefit of this although it's it's not about saving money will be that sort of hopefully there will be some savings and and i think that can only do sort of the commercial course in london and and london arbitration uh, a positive exactly i completely agree with everything you've you've said there alexander as usual i might add um it might be worth for those for some of those listening just to recap what the new practice direction requires in short it requires that witness statements set out only the evidence that the witness would have given had they given that evidence in chief orally. So that should result, as you said, Alexander, in much shorter statements, um, only including evidence about facts and issues that actually need to be proved by the witness. They are not meant to be statements where witnesses are providing a narrative of every single event or piece of correspondence in the case. That does beg a question about where it is that the parties put across their their story or their narrative of the key facts. Most people are thinking that it will probably mean much longer opening statements at trial. And that's where the judge will be pointed to the key documents in the case. And actually, thinking about it for you know, only 30 seconds, you, you can realise that that's much more appropriate than having witnesses sort of perform the job of effectively pointing the judge to, to documents, which I think has been the approach taken by, by some in the past. It's important that the statements deal only with witnesses' personal recollection of events and that they explain the extent to which the witnesses recollect the events, whether they have a very clear memory of, say, a particular meeting, or whether they have had to look back at a document, or perhaps their notes of a meeting, say, to remind themselves of what happened at the time. It's important, for that, therefore, for the witness to distinguish between what they remember and what some, someone has since told them or they've since read in a document. And there is a requirement now to list every single document that the witness has looked at when preparing the statement. So, of course, the more that a witness can remember well without reviewing documents, the stronger the evidential value. Although there's obviously a balance to be struck. I mean, if the witness tells you when you're preparing a statement something that appears to contradict what you as the lawyer assisting with the statement have seen in the document. I mean, it might then be a good idea to show the witness that document, record in the witness statement that they've looked at the document and say either that having looked at the document, 
the witness's memory has been refreshed, or perhaps that despite the existence of X document, their recollection of events is something different, or perhaps something other than the obvious face value of the document was in the part, in their mind at the time that it was produced. What should in-house lawyers have in mind when dealing with uh, witnesses, given the new practice direction and given the emphasis on witness evidence um, being taken a slightly different way in arbitration too? Well, most important thing to, to note, and I, I know many people will instruct external counsel at an early stage, and of course we'd, we'd encourage that. Some companies have such large in-house legal departments that they like to um, have a really active role in taking witness statements themselves. Um, Either way, it's important for in-house lawyers to realise that absolutely key now more than ever is the initial interview with the witness. It's sensible, therefore, to consider conducting an interview with the key witnesses in the case at a really early stage, when the dispute perhaps has first arisen, at least to take a, a proof of evidence from the witness at that stage to get their freshest recollection of events. It's important to avoid setting a party line about the uh, way that perhaps the, the company's lawyers view the case. I would avoid sharing that with the witnesses because if you were to do that, I think it might influence the way in which they give their evidence, whether consciously or subconsciously. I would also encourage people to interview and talk to witnesses about the case on an individual basis to avoid a sort of group think mentality about what, what happened. And, you know, of course, as has always been the case, but um, as Alexander says, has been brought sharply into focus by the, the court's new requirements you know, to avoid asking leading questions of witnesses, to use very neutral langu- language and to be very cautious about showing witnesses documents that they did not see contemporaneously at the relevant time. That will lead, I'm sure, lots of in-house lawyers to think, well, if a key witness, perhaps a senior person in management who's intimately involved with the conduct of the case, is also going to be a witness. To what extent should they be involved in um, helping with the pleadings, the statements of case? Because there is certainly a risk that by involving the the witness in the pleadings, um, asking them what they think about this point or that point, um, and showing them documents and perhaps draft pleadings, again, that might pollute their memory. But it's a balancing act. I mean, obviously, you don't want to uh, damage your case by excluding senior people from um, having input into the way the case that is run simply because they, you know that they're going eventually to be a witness. Um, so again, I would say importance of taking um, proof of evidence by interviews with witnesses at a really early stage, possibly before you move into statements of case. I think that's all that we probably have time to talk to talk about on the subject of witness statements, although there's there's much more to say. Okay, right. So thank you very much for listening, everyone. That this is the end of the first of two podcasts that Elizabeth and I have done. The next one is is continuing with the court slash litigation slash arbitration theme. 
and next time we'll be talking about uh, disclosure and in particular the disclosure pilot uh, that is ongoing in the business and property courts but not the admiralty court uh, at the moment um, elizabeth's got some tips uh, for, for in-house lawyers and, and also we're going to, to say a little bit about remote hearings uh, as well in our experiences of those uh, so once again thank you very much for listening thank you Trading Straits is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's energy and natural resources or transportation practices, please email tradingstraits at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, and reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at reedsmithllp on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. All rights reserved.